Hello and welcome to Playback Daily for Valentine's Ash Wedding, February the 14th. I'm Louise Herity and here's some of what you might have missed on Radio 1 today. I would have to say the discussion that we had was um, constructive uh, and very robust. But in relation to uh, supporting in principle the, the position we've taken in relation to the smartphones, um, that was not forthcoming at this point. You have a thought, a, to- a thought in your daytime life, OK? God, what if there's an accident now or what if I'm delayed, right? You don't really think much more about that. But if you had a dream where you were delayed, a lot of people would ascribe a lot of meaning to that. Congratulations. How did he propose? He had that note written out and I was reading it. And I was like turned around and then I turned back around and then it was on one knee. Sitting your first leaving cert exam, arriving at work with no clothes on and losing all of your teeth. Dreams can conjure up extraordinary scenarios and they've long been a source of fascination for most people. But what is the real purpose of our dreams? To discuss, Claire Byrne was joined by Dr Harry Barry, GP and mental health specialist, and Dr Anne-Marie Craven from the Department of Psychology at the University of Limerick. Now, Harry, um, will you explain to us what dreaming is, first of all, so we get a handle on it? Yeah. What, what is a dream? Well, a dream is a kind of a short burst of kind of images or stories created by our mind or our brain when we're, when we're asleep. Uh, these episodes last about 18 minutes, maybe something like that. We get about three to six episodes at night. And they mainly occur, really, this is really important, actually. They mainly occur in the second half of, of when we're sleeping. So the last four hours of sleep. So in other words, the first four hours of sleep, we have non-REM sleep, which is non-rapid eye movement. And during uh, sleep, during dreams, we get rapid eye movement. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, we, it, it, uh, dreams are these kind of uh, crazy dreams. They're, they're, they're mad. So when someone gets up in the morning and says, oh, I was dreaming all night about X, you weren't. You were yes. dreaming for about no, 18 no, minutes. No, no, I Actually, it's, oh, it's that you remember the last dream you had. Mm-hmm. That's, that's actually what was really That's going what's on. happening. Yeah. So, um, Anne-Marie, I said that a lot of people are fascinated and intrigued and interested in dreams. It has always been the case, though, hasn't it? That people have been have been really interested in, in dreams and how they work and what they're telling us. Yeah, it's been, it has always been the case. People have been really interested in dreams and really early historical ideas uh, suggested that dreams might be divine in origin, so they contain messages communicated from the gods. And over time, we have more modern perspectives. So what what came after that might have been what Harry would talk about, the psychoanalytic perspective, so that dreams uh, represent wish fulfillment and ideas that we would like to see happen in some way. And Freud and Jung would have been really key figures in this. And that led to a lot of discussion about dreams and the meaning of dreams. But we've come a little further than that again and we think more about uh, brain activity during sleep and how that might relate to the creation of imagery and what the functions uh, of dreams might be. So the neuroscientific perspective has helped us understand a little bit more again than those early perspectives which which weren't really quite accurate. Mm -hmm. But they did inform, didn't they, a lot of our thinking and understanding around dreams, Jung and Freud, Harry? Yes, uh, I think think, uh, Freud, uh, uh, although he gets a lot of grief (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and sometimes rightly so, uh, I think uh, Freud at least was the first guy who said, look, these aren't portents from the gods. These are images coming from our brains. So in fact, in that sense, he was actually right. But Freud actually believed he, he was very interesting. He believed that our dreams were kind of un, un, like repressed or unfulfilled wishes in our subconscious. 
and that only he, of course, was able to interpret them. So he spent two years uh, writing this famous book for, as to how to interpret them. Uh, and of course, it became a big deal then, do you know what I mean? It formed part of psychoanalysis, the, the analysis of your dreams. And then his, his, his buddy, uh, Jung, uh, who ended up uh, having a row with him, really, uh, Jung was his student, and Jung kind of had a different view. He believed that dreams came up from what we call the collective unconscious, which he believed was something which was passed almost uh, through the human race every time a child was born, it, it automatically got this uh, selective uh, or uh, unconscious uh, or what they call collective unconscious. But of course, both of these were shown uh, to be totally vague. Uh, they, like if you give the same dream to uh, five or six psychoanalysts nowadays even, do you know what I mean? They'll probably all come up with a different, a different interpretation. interpretation. It was very vague, very general. Uh, and of course, from a neuroscientific point of view, uh, nobody's ever been able to find, for example, uh, the collective, the source of the collective unconscious. Mm-hmm. So very, very much, uh, although it was the, the, the in, the in, and it's still, by the way, there are still lots and lots of people who really believe strongly from a psychoanalytical point of view that dreams will really give them a lot of information uh, about their lives, etc. But I think modern neuroscience has really brought us into the, shall we say, the modern world. OK, well, maybe, Anne-Marie, yeah, you yeah. might talk to us a little more about that because we have more modern ways of looking at our dreams, which we, you've touched on a, a moment ago. But what sort of perspectives have they given us on what dreams are, are for and whether mm. they're useful or not? Yeah, and I think Freud and Jung really got a conversation going about the human mind. That's really valuable. But as Harry points out, uh, how they went about their studies is not really a scientific approach, right? So we have more scientific approaches now. And I should say, of course, uh, dreams are still very, very difficult to get at, right? Because even if we are measuring brain activity during someone's sleep, we're still relying on them to report the content of the dreams uh, or whether they had a dream at all to, to really know. And of course, people are forgetful. They might uh, rep- recall some details but not others. So dreams are still really, really tricky to get at. But one perspective on dreams that's a little bit more modern is that dreams consist of bursts of visual imagery as well as bursts of emotional experience. And the dream part then is the integration of these. So I like to think of it as, imagine you um, are having these bursts of visual and emotional experience. It's almost like you're on the phone to someone and the line keeps cutting out. So you're getting a little bit of something, right? A little bit of input. But the dream then is you making sense of that. So in the same way you might be on the phone and hearing somebody talk and it's cutting in and out, you might get the of it. You might uh, put a meaning on what they're saying. And the dreams we have during our sleep are us putting meaning on these bursts of visual and emotional experience that happen together. So that's one perspective on dreaming that's that little bit more modern. So Mm. does that then tell us that what we're doing, Harry, and this has been said so many times, is that we're processing what has happened to us in our in our recent past or maybe in our in our long term. Yes. Yeah. Well, what's very interesting, you know, there was an assumption for many, many years that dreaming, which mainly takes part in the second part, you know, of of the night, there was an assumption that this was simply like replaying what happened during the day. Mm -hmm. But very interesting. We've now discovered through neuroscientific research that less than 10 percent of what happens to us during the day is actually is actually happening during our dreams. So in other words, it's obviously not just replaying the, uh, the, the, the what happened during the day. So the, the modern approach is, because we know the amygdala, for example, this is really key to me in my area, do you know what I mean? The amygdala is 30% more active when we're dreaming. 
Uh, the amygdala is our emotional mind and it, it's the guy in charge of our stress systems. It's the guy that's pumping out the adrenaline and cortisol and panic attacks and, and anxiety and all the rest of it. So, it, it, it. so what's happening is the emotional part of the day is being remembered, but the contextual part of the day is, is not. So the modern approach really is that there are two critical components to dreaming. Why do we dream? That's really in a nutshell. And the, the, the first one is the key one in my area. It's emotional regulation. Because something very interesting happens that during, during the periods of dream, the brain shuts down noradrenaline, which is our kind of a, our fear hormone. It's the only time in the whole night, that it sh- in the whole day actually, that it shuts down for those periods, noradrenaline. So noradrenaline, therefore, it, there's a very calm atmosphere going on. So the fight or flight is gone. Yes, that fight or flight is gone. So what happens is the brain literally dis- uh, dismantles the emotion of the day from the contextual memories of the day. So if you go to bed, how often, Claire, have we gone to bed and we're having a, a real row with, with himself or herself? Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And, and uh, in the morning, we've had really good sleep and we wake up in the following morning and we're much calmer and we're much more sensible and we can sit down and have a sensible discussion about it. But if we have a very bad night's sleep, we get up in the following morning, we're, we're angry, we're irritable and we're still uh, fighting with each other. So, uh, so emotional regulation is what happens to us actually when we're sleeping. So it's a critically important part of the human condition that we're able to calm ourselves down, do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? and prepare for the following well, day. But what about people, though, who find their dreams very upsetting and disturbing and wake up feeling not calm and relaxed, we, but very this stressed? Is very, this is very interesting from my point of view because two-thirds of dreams are probably anxious dreams. So suppose you have general anxiety. I have lots of people who have come to me over the years uh, complaining of general anxiety with, you know, worrying, catastrophizing and physical symptoms uh, like fatigue and all that kind of stuff. But they, the ones that come to me most distressed are the ones who t- come in the morning. I can't understand. I'm waking up in the morning. I don't even have time to worry about anything. And I'm shaking and sweating and my stomach is not. There must be something terribly wrong with me. But of course, then when I explain to me, look, all this happened to you is just before you woke up, you had a very anxious dream and your amygdala was pounding out cortisol and adrenaline. So the adrenaline burst that you get your heart going fast and shaking and sweating. And all. A very simple, uh, a normal uh, um, <coughs> physiological stress response to, to anxiety. And you might have a memory of you that You have dream. no memory of what happened to you because your memory of the dream is gone within 90 seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, all you're, all you're experiencing is all the physical symptoms. So, so many people are so relieved God, that's great. Do you know what I mean? So it's really only that. It's really only my dream. And then you teach them flooding techniques, how to manage that. And that's the end of that. <laughs> uh, that's the end of that. You <laughs> get on then and deal with her. Amory, can I ask you, um, from your perspective, whether you believe, from what you know, if the dream content actually means anything? Yeah, so I would be in favour of saying it doesn't really. Um, There might be some exceptions to that. So if somebody has a diagnosis of PTSD, for example, and they're having recurring nightmares about trauma-related content, so that probably does mean something, right? It's reflecting their past experiences. But in general, the content of our dreams is not as as important for most of us as the process of dreaming. So that process of dreaming and making sense of material in our sleep is important, but the actual content that we relay or that we remember in the morning is not so important for most of us. Mm -hmm. Now, it's really fun, of course. Harry, are you going to disagree with that? No, no, I'm not. I actually <laughs> totally agree with Henry. I think she's dead right. I thought we were going to have a round yeah, there. No, We'd no, all be no, dreaming no, about I'd be really keen to hear a disagreement on it. But yeah. uh, but certainly what's interesting, though, is that most people would disagree with me, actually, because uh, even though even though we, we're 
quite scientific in our approach to these things. If you do a survey, if you do a survey of people, a lot of people will attribute quite a lot of meaning to dreams still. Mm-hmm. So imagine you're about to go on holidays and you're taking a flight and you have a thought, a, to- a thought in your daytime life, OK? God, what if there's an accident now or what if I'm delayed, right? You don't really think much more about that. But if you had a dream where you were delayed, a lot of people would ascribe a lot of meaning to that. So studies have found that people ascribe a lot more meaning to dreams than they do to their thoughts every day. So I find that really interesting. Harry, you want to come in there? Yeah, yeah, I I, I think that's very interesting, Anne-Marie. And I I think it's fascinating. And I, I couldn't agree more with you. I think so many people really believe their dreams are really, really important. But I think there's a second key part to dreaming. And that's our creativity and problem solving. And this one I actually really love. So what actually happens is the hippocampus, which is our memory part of the brain, when we're dreaming, is very active as well. And it's this guy, he stores the memories of the day and he then he starts to bounce them round again, right around the brain. In other words, something that's happened during the day and he, he bounces that against everything that happened to you in the past. It was back and forth. It's the most nutty kind of uh, shunting out stuff all over the place. But what comes out of that, which is extraordinary, and it, is, it really is a wonderful mystery to me how it happens, is we get creativity and we get problem solving. So if I have a problem that's really bothering me or something I'm trying to come up with, an idea that I'm trying mm-hmm. to kind of come up with, I often go to sleep with that and I wake up the funny morning and the answer is And there. you've solved it. Well, we should but value, we should value our dreams. <laughs> Dr. Harry Barry and Dr. Anne-Marie Craven on Today with Claire Byrne. Oliver Callum was joined in studio by writer, comedian and actress Ruth Jones who spoke about currently starring in Sister Act, the musical at the Bordgosh Theatre and she also gave us an education on the Welsh language. People are looking for more Welsh words. Oh, are they? Okay. It's like we're just discovering uh, Welsh. I was, it's true, <laughs> the two L's together make a cluck sound. It's like a clandudn. Yeah, so like, clandudno. you know, the long... Name places. Llanfair Pushgwingelgo Gerell Windrobo Llantasilio Gogogoch. Which I think means something about a church near a pool with red water in it or something. Whatever yeah. it is, it's the opposite yeah. to a slow set or a smooch. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like the antidote maybe to that. There are some lovely Welsh words, I have to say. Um, one of my favourites is the word for spinach, which is spigogles. Spigogles. So there we are. Your listeners have word for the day, Welsh word for the day, (laughs) spigogles. None of us can ever say spigogles. Spigogles. Would have thought. Spigogles. Well done. Very good. Very good. Um, I have to ask you about the thing. I was. I wasn't really planning to do to bore you with the Gavin Stacey. Is it coming back again? You know what? And then the thing happened, and it's everywhere. I know. You've seen this. I. I just find it so hilarious. Yeah. I mean. That's great, isn't it? What is it? What's reoccurring? I was looking at... um, This is the Irish sun today. I I was looking at something. I think you mentioned it. Apparently there's a bidding war going on between the BBC and Netflix. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I love it because it says, a source says. Um, You know, who is this source? (laughs) Where does this stuff come from? Um, James and I went for lunch when he came back from America. We went for lunch in London uh, a few months ago and we got papped. And then the next thing is, oh, my God, they must be writing more Gavin and Stacey, which is lovely. It's lovely that (laughs) people love it and they're so desperate for it. You know, really desperate. Yeah, because like imagine if it was the opposite and they were like, oh, God, they're not bringing that back. (laughs) So um, it's it's. It's sadly a rumour. 
Um, okay. I don't know what I, I don't know what to say. Uh, I th- all I can say is, if there was something to say on that front, James and I would happily announce it. You know, we would. Mm. But some random journalist who's decided to uh, write this story, I, I'm lost for words. As Mother Superior says in Sister Act, there are no words. <laughs> I mean, she says that about the choir because they sing so badly. But it's quite but, detailed. They're saying you're literally writing. I know, I know. And all know. the cast have been notified. Yeah, but then, OK, so ring up some of their agents and say, have you actually been approached with an That's offer a good for idea. your client? Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Ask <laughs> yeah, the agents. Yeah. It's uh, it, it's hilarious. And I I don't know. I, I, I just have to smile uh, and just go, okay, this is the world in which we live. You have one little story that somebody writes about a rumour and then mm-hmm. the next thing it explodes, which, you know, let's be positive about it. It's great that people love the show so much. You're That's... delighted that people are dying for it to come back. But yeah. there was one story, I think it was Deadline broke the story and then it's gone everywhere. Exactly, it just goes everywhere. Which is, that, you know, that's the war. world in which we live now. I mean, the bidding war. Where's this coming from? You are very much dissing that one. <laughs> <laughs> that's very clear that it's not happening at all. But not quite ruling it out because you don't want to. We James and I talk about Gavin and Stacey a lot because, of course, we do. It's a huge part of our lives, right? Yeah. We love those characters. We often say... Oh, imagine if Bryn was doing this and Nessa came in and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I I sent James a photo the other day. I wonder if I can find it on my phone. This friend sent it to me and I just thought this is absolutely brilliant. It was basically, um, um, and I'm sorry your your listeners can't see it, but it's basically, it's about, I'd say, 15 women... All dressed as Nessa. Oh, go away. Yeah, have a look. That's great. Can you see, great. Can, can yes, you see I can it? Indeed. Oh, yes. All in the leather waistcoats. I mean, wigs they, and everything. It's very detailed. They the put tights. so much effort into that, right? And they just had a girls' night out <laughs> dressed as Nessa. That is incredible. There are people who have careers being Nessa lookalikes. There's a, there's a woman called Knock Off Nessa who <laughs> makes it uh, makes a living out of, really? out of, out of be, pretending to be Nessa. Shoves up so, to birthday parties and disses people with a, yeah, with a look. Yeah. <laughs> and it just, it gives a lot of people a lot of joy. I, you know, I, I people um, say that the show got them through bad times in their life, like, you know, grieving or divorce or illness. What a, what a compliment that is. It's really gorgeous. Is. Yeah. yeah. And I love the fact that you love it. Yeah. Because some people, if they're kind of have a huge thing, they're slightly reluctant to go, I don't want to talk about that ever again. Yes. It, it's, um, I, I love to talk. I'm just, I am complimented and so is James, really are. We, ha- we are completely grateful for what it's done for us in our lives because it, it has done a huge amount. So, you know. It's done a lot for other people as well, but we'll, we don't know if Smithy, what Smithy said no. <laughs> at the end. I quite like the idea though of it, just lingering there and us wondering what 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 did she say? A gigantic Are marriage together? proposal. I Are mean, I think she's still working down the slots, probably coaching the Welsh rugby team uh, <laughs> because she's very good at that. Could do it as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's a five. It would be five years. So, uh, baby, yeah. Neil the baby. It's an extra five years. Did you know, by the way, Neil the baby, the actor, mm-hmm. um, actually was on The Voice, the, the the voice, the kids' voice. Oh, really? Yes, Oscar Hartland. 
I don't know. If, I don't think he got through to the finals, but he did really, really well. And it was quite astonishing seeing him because just in that short time, you know how boys grow up very quickly, don't they? They have that growth spurt sort of around 12, 13. Oh, yes. So he'd so gone from being this sort of sweet little innocent boy to this kind of rock star. Wow. No, yeah. He's beautifully you cast it. as yeah. uh, particularly Smithy's son because you can get the kind of... Yeah, but I thought he really looked like Nessa and Smithy. Oh, OK, yeah. Yeah, he looked exactly like the kind of yeah. big point. Yeah. And of course, you gave him all the, the Nessa's, Nessa's language. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> Fluent in Nessa. Yeah. <laughs> it, was it a perfect constellation of story, characters and your cast? Because some, something incredibly magical happened on that show. Yeah, it was it was a real family. Um, and I think, again, because it came from such sort of innocent, naive roots in a way, because James and I didn't know how it was going to be. I mean, we, we wrote that very first episode together and we literally, we said at the end of it, if nothing comes of this show, it has made us laugh so much because Brilliant. it was the scene with Bryn and the rape alarm, which is a bit dark, I know. But um, <laughs> we just laughed so much when we read that and we thought it's brought us a lot of joy. So uh, if maybe if nothing comes of it, at least we've enjoyed ourselves for a few hours. <laughs> and at least we're having a laugh out of the scurry, <laughs> the scurry of information that's going on. Yes. We have so many texts coming in on, on lots of things, by the way. I loved Ruth in A Child's Christmas in Wales, uh, which is, of course, another hero of Wales, Dylan Thomas's yes. um, short story, I think, isn't it? Yes, that's right. So uh, it was made into a um, like a modern version, sort of set over three Christmases during the decade of the 80s. OK. And uh, oh so I had some lovely shoulder pads and 80s hairstyles it's in that. A, that's a really special story for, for Welsh people, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It, it is. But, I mean, pitch. Dylan Thomas is, you know, pretty much... You've got quite a lot of poets, haven't you? We do. But yeah. we do. We, got a lot we admire Dylan we Thomas as well. <laughs> yeah, but you <laughs> I didn't want to say. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you have got a lot of poets, haven't you? We do. Yeah, and a lot more than, than we have. And Dylan Thomas would still drink them all under the table. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he's yes. a great quote, but speaking of being teetotal, and he's saying an alcoholic is someone you don't li- someone you don't like who drinks as much as you do. <laughs> Something like yeah. that. So I think that's him. It could be, it could be the wrong word. Um, my daughter and I are a little, a little bit obsessed with Gavin and Stacey. You'll have those. Aww. They quote lines from the show at each other. But her favourite has to be when Ness comes out of the change room whether the leather bask with Stacey says, oh, Ness, you look gorgeous. And she replies, I know. I knows it. I knows it. Do you know, I think people know the lines better than I do now. Yes, do. <laughs> Actress, comedian and writer Ruth Jones on The Oliver Callan Show. Love was in the air today for the day that's in it and Morning Ireland reporter Ethna Dodd was out and about asking people what's the most romantic thing you've ever done for someone? Has anyone ever made a big gesture for you? Have you made a gesture for anyone? The engagement last night. Congratulations! How did he propose? He had that note written out and I was reading it and I was like turned around and then I turned back around and he was on one knee <laughs> proposing to me. So yeah. You didn't know he was going to propose? No. What's the most romantic thing you've ever done? God, I don't know. I'm desperately single and alone, so it'll take me a while to think. <laughs> but I don't know. I'm not really a romantic person in real life, I don't think. What's the most romantic thing you've ever done? McDonald's. That was about it, hey, a date at McDonald's. That's all I got. 
And what about yourself? Have you done anything romantic for someone else? I bought them chocolates, that was about it. Hey, that's all you can afford. It's been a very, very long time, so I don't have a clue. Like, I swear, I'm not even be joking, like, so... What about, have you done anything romantic for someone else? That's probably, no. <laughs> I'd say it's long time. I'm probably doing more things for my friends than anything, like, you know, so if that one's, if you want to count that, like, you know, so... I'm always very good at getting gifts for my friends and stuff like that. I would be quite, if they say something, they like, I'll take note of it, like, regardless, like, you know, so... Something like along those lines. What's the most romantic thing you've ever done? Save the hair. What does that mean? Like a rabbit. <laughs> On our first date, he, we went to the Yorkshire Sculpture Park and a hair had dropped into a massive hole that was walled all the way round. And he's 65 and he jumped in it and saved the hair and threw the hair out. So I thought, yeah, it'll do for me. <laughs> Etna Dodds report on Morning Ireland. Unfortunately for some, there can be a dark side to love and romance. And on Morning Ireland, Kean McCormack told us that €7 million Euro has been stolen from victims of romance fraud in the past five years. And for the day that's in it, Valentine's Day, Gardaí are telling people to be on the alert for scams that could steal their hearts and empty their wallets. Well, Detective Superintendent Michael Crine joins us on the line. Detective Superintendent... Firstly, what is a romance fraud? Yeah, good morning and, and thank you for giving me this opportunity. Um, ro- romance fraud, it, it happens all year round. It's not just a Valentine's Day issue. Um, it's where fraudsters create uh, fake personas on dating sites in the main. Uh, when they're matched with a victim, they will advise or encourage the victim to move offline from the dating site messaging app onto the likes of WhatsApp or by email. They will pose as a person with a responsible job somewhere in a very out-of-the-way location where coverage is poor, it's difficult to make contact, they can't travel. Um, they, they will slowly and slowly financially groom the victim until such time as the victim starts sending them money. Uh, it could start small and it could become quite large. Seven million euro has been taken from people over the past five years, but how many people have been scammed? Um, it's it's difficult to know um, because uh, unfortunately, our, our, we would suspect that um, it is underreported crime. Um, in 2023, there was 38 different victims made reports. That is a, a reduction of about 31% from the previous year, from 2022. Um, this peaked really during COVID, 2020, 2021, even 22, there was just over 2 million stolen, whereas last year um, it reduced to just 800 odd thousand, which is still a lot of money. But it seems to be going the right direction. That has been, it is reducing. Uh, but the concern is that it's underreported. Well, we're talking about overall figures here, but the biggest scam saw a woman losing €450,000. What happened to that woman? That is still under investigation uh, and uh, therefore won't comment too much on it. Um, she's just one, one of the one of the 38 victims in 2023 and the, the sums of money are relative to the people. Um, to some people, you know, it, it, it's, it's the lack, it's the trust, it's, it's the, the, that is the biggest, can be the biggest problem here as well. Is the money ever recovered? 
It is rare. Um, it, the money, unfortunately, this type of crime goes on for some time and the money is moved out of the country in the vast majority of cases and it can take the victim some time before to be realised they have been a victim of a fraud. So therefore, when it's reported to the Gardaí, it can be on occasions up to a year after it started. So the longer it goes on, the more difficult. It is very difficult to recover. Finally and briefly, what's your parting advice to people today? The advice to people is to first of all use a reputable dating site and to stay on the messaging function uh, until you really, really have built up a level of trust with the with the with the person. You can also do Google reverse image searches on the image they're using just to make sure it is a true one. Be also careful the personal details and the data you share with somebody. Be wary of people who are asking you lots of questions, lots of personal questions, but not divulging too much information, and. I suppose as finally never ever send money. Do not share your bank details. Do not share data, personal data. Do not take investment advice from them. Seek independent financial legal advice in relation to investment. And just if it sounds too good to be true, it, it sometimes is. Just be wary and follow the gut instinct and seek advice from a trusted family member or a friend or call into a guard station and always report it. There's no need to be embarrassed. Um, this can happen to anybody and it is happening quite a lot. Detective Superintendent Michael Cryan talking to Kean McCormick on Morning Ireland. If you've been thinking about upgrading your home to make it more energy efficient, there is a wealth of information out there in terms of retrofitting, but it can be hard to know what suits your needs best and what grants are available. To answer some common questions, Claire Byrne was joined in studio by quantity surveyor Shay Lally and on the phone by Kieran McCarthy, engineer and house builder with KMC Homes in Cork and Limerick and co-presenter of Cheap Irish Homes on RTE Television. Kieran, I'll start with you because if you want to carry out improvements on your home, what are the different ways you can do the work in order to make sure that you, you avail and get those grants? Good morning, Claire. Um, I suppose there, there's two principal avenues you can go down. There is a single measure avenue and there is a full deep retrofit. And it really comes down to your budget and I suppose your appetite for invasive work in your home. So single measures could be when you just want to bite off a small chunk. So you might want to get your external insulation, your external wrap done. You might want to get your attic insulation done. Or you might want to get solar panels. So that's a single measure. Or you might get a few measures and, and, and avail the grants. And that's a reasonably straightforward setup. You avail of the grant. You apply for the grants yourself and you get your own contractor to do the building work. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're going for a more deep retrofit, which is, um, look, you could be spending up to 50,000 euros, maybe even more on a deep retrofit, uh, where you're getting the heat pump, you're getting new floor insulation, wall insulation, attic insulation, you're probably getting a ventilation unit, you're getting air tightness. So basically, you're, you're re-engineering the external envelope of your home to bring your energy... Uh, consumption uh, and BER uh, up to a B2 level, that's a much more elaborate setup and you have to get a one-stop shop to do your grant then because it's a much it's, it's a much more elaborate process. Okay, so the more you spend, the further into this you're going to get and the more you say then you're going to need the one-stop shop to help you out. Yeah, it gets a lot more complicated when you get into the deep reach of it. So you won't be able to do the grant application yourself. Mm-hmm. You need an intermediary called a one-stop shop 
where they will they will deal with all the technical and verification aspects, like all the, the photographs and all the, the specifications and everything. Okay. They'll deal with um, interfacing between you and SEI to get the grants, because there's kind of too many moving parts. Oh, all right. So, Shay, the biggest obstacle for people, and we saw this borne out on Room to Improve, where you're looking at your budget and you're adding in the grants into that. But if you don't have the money up front, and people are saying this all of the time, aren't they, anecdotally, that they have to find the money in order to claim it back. That's the biggest obstacle, isn't it? Yeah, it's massive now, to be fair. And you're looking at big money, like if you're looking at, I suppose, retrofitting a property like an apartment, like the size of a, say, a two-bed apartment, you're looking at €45,000, and then you will get a grant. Um, the grant will probably cover roughly a third of that. So say the 45000 it'll cost you thirty, and you'll get roughly maybe €15,000 back. And then if you're looking at a house, like, say, a three-bedroom semi-detached house, you could be up in the region to spend an €80,000 on, on deep retrofitting that house. Um, and again, you would roughly get around a third of that money back. But the big challenge is the budgeting piece, as you say, I think essentially in my mind the way it should be is that there should be in a scroll account, if you like. So when you're approved for your grant and the money that you're approved for, so let's just say you're approved for €20,000, that should be put into, say, in a scroll account and it's there. The contractor knows it's there and the homeowner knows it's there. So that kind of gives everyone peace of mind. And then at the end, there should be a, a, a kind of a case of their sign off at the end and then that's the final payment that the contractor gets. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially the way I think it should be. But Well, there was an announcement on that, wasn't there, at the end of, of last year, this new low-cost loans that Minister Eamon Ryan uh, told us about to support households to retrofit their loans. Do you think that might perform the same purpose? Yeah, I do think that's great. I really do. But my concern is, and we've seen this, is that when people can access something, the cost all of a sudden then jumps up. So your lower interest rate, my concern with that would be that then the price for things go up and you have kind of price creep and the interest rate, although you have a saving there, you're kind of back to square one again. How do you mitigate against that? Because even if you had the escrow account, that would happen as well, would it not? Yeah, it would, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, <laughs> no solution. Yeah, there's no solution, no. Okay. The challenge. Um, w- w- well, we talk about um, the grants that are available. So what do you get a grant for and how does it work, Shay? Yeah, so like, let's just say you have a house and you want to insulate your attic. You can get a, a single grant, as Kieran was saying, just to insulate your attic. Okay. Now, the grant is done differently. So it's not based necessarily on the size of your house. It's based on the type of house. So, for example, if you live in a terraced house, you will get less money than somebody who lives in a semi-detached house. Um, and then the person who lives in the de- detached house would get more money, essentially. And that's how all the grants are done, really, apart from the heat pump. The heat mm. pump is Is that because the people in the detached house are going to have to spend more? Yes and no. Like if you have a small detached house versus someone who has a large bungalow, they're both detached properties. So if you have a, a small detached house, the, it'll cost you arguably less to insulate your attic. If we just think of the attic um, insulation example, and then with the bungalow, you'd have a much larger area. So the attic would be much larger. So the cost to insulate the attic would be greater but the grant is still the same because they're both deemed to be detached properties. Okay. Um, so I, I suppose, Kieran, it's about telling people where to start here. So is it up to you as the property owner to go off and research this or will the builder, the architect, someone like Shay even tell you what you need to do and what's available to you? And are people in the trades and in the professions up to speed on it all? Um, yeah, well, I, I suppose, look, there's no doubt a, a lot of the contractors know uh, the SEI registered contractors would be fairly up to speed, but they're more up to speed on their own discipline. So if you have someone who's expert in, in external insulation, the, the, the rack installation, they won't be read up on kind of heat pumps or air tightness, so to speak. 
so it is hard to get it all in one go. But um, like the, the unsung hero here um, really is the BR assessor because like it, and it's not a huge outlay to get a BR assessment done for your home. But if you could, and you need to do it anyway to get the grants. So the first person I'd be bringing to my home is a BER assessor who will um, assess your home in its current state and give you your current BER rating, and they will give you a report, an SEI report uh, generated, uh, which will give you uh, some of the measures and some of the some of the it, it'll rank the measures available in terms of their bank for book. So you get an awful lot of um, an awful lot of great energy, uh, um, you know, great information from them. If you're proceeding with the grant, particularly the deep retrofit grant, the next thing you do is you get the um, the home energy assessment done by your one-stop shop company, um, and there's also a little bit of grant available for this. And that's the report that follows the initial BR assessment that will tell you what uh, measures you could ideally be going for and a rough estimate of those measures. Okay, so and that's, that's the first big step to kind of tee you up for, for making a grant application. So going back to the BER assessor, you go out and, and find one and they are private professionals and you pay those yourself. So then you have on paper, this is what I need to do and this is where my property currently stands in terms of the energy rating. Then you say ideally you go to the one-stop shop. But there aren't that many one-stop shops in Ireland and I know people are finding it really difficult to find one free and available to help them, aren't they? Uh, they are. No, I suppose that there is more entering the market as, as, as time wears on. I know there's a few um, that have entered the market even last year. So look, I suppose the, the construction industry is slowly gearing up because there's an avalanche of, of houses that need to be that need to be upgraded. Um, so it, it, it is improving, but it is slow to improve. Like I know of even Cork of solar panel PV companies that are getting up and running now. So the market is slowly getting there. But look, you will, unfortunately, just with with, um, with construction industry at present, you will, you will be waiting a little bit anyway for any mm. measure. Do, do you agree with that, Shay, that we're really waiting for the one-stop shop availability to ramp up? Because I think the most recent figures showed that there are about 19 operating in the country. Yeah, I think that's a huge challenge. Like, There's kind of like a barrier to entry in some ways to actually do it because there's certain criteria you need to actually become a one-stop shop. And in my mind, I think that's something that needs to be looked at as well. And there could be scope to say if you want to deep retrofit your house and you don't have all of the money to do it, there is an argument to say do it in phases, for example. And if there were other companies on the, on the system that maybe they are one-stop shops and they're fully SEI registered, but they're kind of newer to the game and they're taking on, say, smaller retrofits, that might help to ease things. Um, so they'd basically phase the works and they'd be going in and doing a smaller project um, for people rather than going in doing the full project and having to comply with everything that the SEI are looking for mm-hmm. you know can you get smaller players can you get the one stop shop to apply for the grants for you and then find other contractors to do the work ooh I don't think so no the one you st- can actually oh, can you, you, can, go, yeah. you go ahead yeah. Kieran. yeah I, I suppose I, I, there's two things there first of all the, I suppose the small issue with deep retrofit works is you're kind of committing to the whole project because like if you're like to get a, a heat pump and air to water unit to, to work in your house you need the house to be quite airtight which means you probably need ventilation uh, to get it to work efficiently in the winter you need the house to be well insulated so you're probably um, taking the box on next to all of the um, of the retrofit works in one go and putting in your windows and all that um, you can get a deep retro, you can get a uh, one-stop shop company to do the grants for you, and you have to for a deep retrofit, uh, and then you can get your own contractors if you wish to do the um, the retrofit the retrofit works as long as they're SEI registered. 
So you can kind of do it direct labour. You can get your own insulation company, get your own heat pump installer, um, and you can get your own um, ventilation companies, whatever. Again, as long as they're all SEI registered, you can do it that mm-hmm. way. See, the fear is that people will do the work and then they won't get the grant back, uh, care on the money back. But if you comply with everything that you're asked to comply with, you are pretty much guaranteed to get the money back, are you? Yeah, what will happen there is like, like once you um, engage the one-stop shop company to actually um, to, to tee up the grant for you engage, and engage with SAI, th- that isn't the end of the process. Like, as you're doing the works, you are in contact with them regularly. They're telling you, look, um, if you got the heat pump installed last week, make sure you get photographs of it installed. Make sure you get all the certs. Um, make sure you have photographs of the external insulation being installed. So they'll they'll be te- they'll be kind of coaching you as you go along, making sure. And you'll be sharing documents. You can put them into a Google Drive or a Dropbox or whatever. Mm-hmm. Sharing the documents, and they'll be saying, "Look, we've reviewed the photographs. We need more photographs of whatever it is." So they will be coaching you as you go along. You know okay. I mean? So it, it, it's highly on you know unless there's a major ball drop, it's unlikely that. Um, that you'll uh, that 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 you there'll be there'll be a dramatic you won't get the grant. Okay, well that's well, the other thing is the, the chances are high you'll have an architect or an engineer involved in your project as well with spending that kind of money. Yes. Um, now the SEII have provided loads of information on all of this for us, and I just want to uh, bring you these figures. So in 2023, we had 5,898 properties upgraded through the fully funded upgrades. That was up 33% on the previous year on 2022. There were a total of almost 14,000 applications for the fully funded upgrades over that same period. So that's up 41% on 2022. So there's plenty of demand, like almost doubled year on year. But we can see from the figures there, Shake, that getting people over the line is proving to be a bit of a challenge still, isn't it? Yeah, the biggest thing is just the labour shortage. And it's the same in every every industry, really, you know. Um, And it's just difficult. We just don't have... The bodies, and as someone said to me before, back a couple of months ago, they said to me, "It's even difficult to get a bad person right now." You know, it's just it's hard to get lads essentially on sites. You know, mm-hmm. and that's we've a labour shortage, and that's a big part of the problem as to why there are delays and it's hard to come by people. And it is a contributing factor to why things have stayed so high post COVID, and even after some of the material costs have dropped off, the the cost of things are staying high because of the labour shortage. Okay, well, look, I have uh, a couple of questions now that I really want to get through. And I have this lengthy one from Paula and Jared in Cork. So bear with me while we get through this now. So they have a 25-year-old kitchen extension to a small Victorian house. The windows in this portion of the house are 25 years old, double glazed PVC. In total, the glass portion of the room covers about one third of it. They show no sign of needing to be replaced, no condensation, no serious draft. But would I get a material gain in heat retention if I were to upgrade the glass in the room? Oh, that's from Linda in Dublin 6. So that's the, the shorter one. Who'd like to take that? Kieran? will I go to you first on that one? Yeah, so, so the, the glazing is 20-odd years old, is it? Yes, 25-year-old kitchen extension. Yeah. The windows are the same age, yeah. double glazed PVC. Yeah, yeah. Um, y- yes is the, the answer to that. I mean, like 25-year-old PVC is kind of the beginnings of PVC double glazed. Uh, so you would have a you would have a significant improvement in in new value by by upgrading those. Even though look, they might be in fine working order. That the the modern uh, new values of uh, of PVC is kind of down to one point two now mm-hmm. for double typically and A rated. So yes, is the answer that you, you would get a Shay, is Linda going to get any grant help if she replaces those windows? Just the glass, no, not in that situation. You don't. 
nothing for, nothing no, for replacing the glass no no not okay. if you're just doing the single grants like windows and doors and covered if you're doing the deep retrofit but not with the single alright that'll grants. answer a question yeah. for a lot of people I'd say <laughs> listening now here's Paula and Gerard's question we live in a 1980s four bed bungalow it has a B2 BER rating this rating is indicative of our efforts made today to improve the efficiency of the home it's heated by a solid fuel stove and oil fired central heating we can't afford to tear up the house asunder to install underfloor heating at this stage of our lives. We're in our early 60s. So we're wondering what our options are as regards moving it over to air to water heat pump type system or the likes. Can we install a heat pump driven zoned heating system that is distributed via an air conditioning model such as ducting in the attic to each area of the house which might be less onerous to tearing up the existing concrete floor structures and is there grant approval for such a system? Well they've thought long and hard about Whoa. this now Kieran. Um, there's a bit more at stake to changing from an oil-fired system to uh, a heat pump. Like you need you need your airtightest level to be at a certain level, and you need the the, the U value of your uh, thermal conductivity of your uh, external envelope to be a certain level. So, without knowing that, I can't honestly say because, like, if you have an oil-fired system. Um, you could still have quite a warm house because you're generating a lot of heat with that system, whereas mm-hmm. an air-to-water system is quite a low heat. So if you have any little bit of inefficiency, for example, drafts in your house, you you won't get the benefit of an air-to-water system. So I think you'll struggle, to be quite honest, but you, without doing, you, know, you, you might do an airtightness test and find out you have a very um, airtight house uh, just because you, you're B2 already, um, and you might get a BR assessment done on your external insulation or your insulation wrap and find out it's already very efficient. But knowing that I can't comment on that okay. but one thing I would say is like if you're if the hope is to dramatically improve your BR assessment from where you are um, I think solar PV and, and there is a grant for that um, will will dramatically improve your BR um, from where you currently are without being hugely invasive Okay well I hope that helps uh, Paula and George Engineer and house builder Kieran McCarthy and quantity surveyor Shay Lally on today with Clareburn. Well, what's been dubbed a social media summit took place this morning at the Department of Education between the Minister Norma Foley and the country's top social media companies and mobile phone providers. Better controls to protect children from harm online was a key theme of today's meeting, as well as age verification and the industry's attitude to the Minister's smartphone policy for primary school children. And Minister Norma Foley joined Brian Dobson on the News at One to discuss... Um, you're correct. I, I met with a variety of, of providers here, whether it was Meta, Google, Microsoft, TikTok and of course telecommunication providers as well, 3Ireland, Vodafone, Tesco uh, and IBEC. And basically um, I raised with them, as you've said, um, areas around age verification and also the, the smartphone uh, issue. I, I did invite them um, in principle, uh, the telecommunication providers, the phone providers to support in principle the position we have taken to um, support parents to hold off, if you like, from purchasing smartphones for children at primary school. And um, we all know that, um, you know, latest Mm -hmm. reports are telling us that children as as young as six years of age are accessing um, smartphones. I would have to say the discussion that we had was um, constructive uh, and very robust. But in relation to uh, supporting in principle um, the, the position we've taken in relation to the smartphones, smartphones um, that was not forthcoming at this point. And right. specifically in, in relation to age verification, 
Again, um, you know, I, I know we're told that, you know, um, social media platforms would have a policy um, that it would be 13 years of age. But we also know, I, I know myself from visiting schools, from personal engagement, meeting with parents and staff, that there are children much, much younger than 13 mm. um, accessing social media platforms. And again, I, I raised that um, with the providers and I asked them that they would, you know, very clearly that they would introduce an age verification system. Um, we we know... How, just I wonder, how... how how effective can something like that be? Um, I mean, is, is it not really up to parents to, to monitor their children's phone use and to make use of the, the blocks that are on the phones to ensure they don't get access to inappropriate material? Well, certainly that is part of it. But I, I think there's a wider responsibility here. You know, if we are being told um, by the different platforms that um, they're not available to children under 13, well, then they should have very robust um, mechanisms in place to ensure that that's the case. Mm-hmm. And we know that there are many young people younger than 13 who are accessing and they're under 13. So I, I'm not prescriptive as regards the mechanism that they might introduce, whether it's uploading documents like passports or, you know, live selfies or whatever. That, that's not the issue. I'm very happy for them to come up with a particular type of mechanism. But we must ensure that young people uh, younger than 13 mm-hmm. are not accessing content that we know is harmful to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know there are instances of cyber bullying. Um, you know, there are so mm-hmm. many ramifications for young people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we can't fulfil age verification, then I do believe that the young people are being failed. Minister, if I might raise another issue with you while, while you join us, and it's uh, it's been raised today, in fact, by Labour Party's education spokesman, Aon O'Reardon. He's strongly criticising, as others have, you for removing complex needs from the assessment criteria for special needs education for providing resources to schools. Now, it's, it's a very, it's a technical change. It's been introduced and in taken effect in the last number of weeks, and it's raised a lot of concern among uh, uh, on the political front and also among p- people concerned with uh, the education and welfare of children who have uh, complex educational uh, needs. Um, do you accept that there are concerns around this, that schools are concerned that they're going to lose some of their special uh, educational teaching hours as a result of this? Well, look, in the first instance, I, I, I know as Minister and I know all of us really want to ensure that children with additional needs will get the absolute maximum of supports. So the model that was in place was in place since 2017. But schools and um, management bodies and and unions indeed pointed up that there were many strengths in it, but there were also many shortcomings. So there was a review done and it was done and there was consultation again with Mm -hmm. the unions, with the management bodies and indeed um, with schools on the ground. And so what has been introduced is meeting, I suppose, the criticisms of the previous system. So the first point was that there wasn't significant enough weighting being given to the population or the school profile mm-hmm. uh, that has now been weighted specifically in relation to uh, complex needs. It's very much so part of the model. Mm-hmm. Um, heretofore, we relied on information that was coming from the HSE in relation to children with complex needs. And I want to be clear, look, the information that we got from one HSE area could be very complete. It could be less so in another area and lesser again in another area. So it wasn't um, it, it wasn't uniform. We were not getting the fullest of information. So that has been replaced with school-based data, mm-hmm. which will be similar across all schools. And where a child has a significant complex need, they can still undertake the uh, the test if they wish. But if they wish not to, they will get the maximum weighting. But, but so the result it's of not this... Accurate. I, sorry, if I sorry, could just finish, Brian, no, sorry, because it's I, very important. It is not accurate to say children with complex needs are, are not being accommodated here. They very much so okay. are, because well, the what you motivation have it, is to ensure okay. that children with needs 
needs are getting the maximum yeah. of but support. But what you've acknowledged is that a third of schools will lose teaching hours. Well, what I've acknowledged is um, a third of schools, 67% mm. of schools will receive either the same hours yeah. or indeed will improve the hours. Yeah. 23% of schools um, will lose some hours, either five hours or less. And in fact, somewhere between 70 and 90%, it will be less again than the five hours. So that's sorry, because... But sorry, the total to number, the total percentage of schools that will lose hours is, is about a third. But 23%. Well, sorry, well the figures be... we have say 33%. I, mean, I don't want to get into a, uh, arguing about, about figures, but about a third of schools will lose at least some hours. No, 67% of schools will um, receive um, either the same or, yeah. or, or increased and 23% will reduce either by five hours or indeed less than okay. that. And that's to ensure again that the distribution is fair um, across... Sorry, um, 20, 23, and, sorry, 23 and 67 is 90. Sorry, 33%. 30, yeah. A third, well that's what I said. Yeah. A third of schools yeah. will lose hours. And that is to ensure that there's an equal distribution right across where the students that have the most complex need, that they will get the maximum support. Right. And equally, I'd have to say to you, there is a review in place. So if schools feel that they are not getting um, the allocation that they should get, they're entitled to ask for a review for that. And secondly, I want to say that the National Council for Special Education trialled this um, new model in all of the schools um, that they had visited and they found at least 92% accurate here, but Very I accept okay. no model will be 100% perfect, so we ask people to engage with the right. review. But okay. this is centred on the maximum of supports for children with additional needs. Minister for Education Norma Foley on the News at One with Brian Dobson today. Finally today, Oliver Callan took some of us down memory lane as he remembered the slow set. And by the way, St. Valentine died not for chocolates. Not for roses, but for the true beginning of romance in the life of every human being. I'm talking about the slow set at the disco. Now, we were putting together some music this morning. People are very emotional, actually, in the team today. Because all you need is a few bits of this and you're gone. (sighs) Tom Cruise sweating. Lots of sunsets. The, uh, the the romance of the of the nineties of the eighties that would be the eighties wouldn't it for the eighties teenagers take my breath away you're just you're just kind of gone it's the, the you know the, the those early days in your life and when the floor is cleared of the hairy hoof sons of Aaron fellas stitch into wranglers and check shirts and it was kind of time for the women really of the women to become the matriarchs of the smoke filled nightclubs of Ireland. All those nightclubs usually named after bits of the solar system uh, in half the country for reasons we don't know. More 80s. How innocent we were. It's just beautiful. It just brings you... We'll have a bit of the bangles as well. It's particularly, particularly 80s. A1 Chardon. That was kind of the voice would break during the slow set. I do. I do. Hungry for chips. You're hallucinating because of the smoke and also the nightclub can't afford much dry ice so just uh, get the slow set 
underway and out of it. These are the teenage years, the, 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 the rituals of the shift, the meat, as it's called in parts of the country. The, the meat with two E's. But the meat also, okay, believe The slow set went on into the night. I remember the 90s. I don't remember Madonna in the 80s. Some people out there will. This wasn't a slow set in my day. Oh, Madonna, you make some of us feel young, even though you're still around, because you just won't go away, really. Oh, oh, there's a bit of synth there. It kind of just, it all feels like Tom Cruise um, somewhere with a sunset. Well, so many of them are Tom Cruise. Um, uh, what is, what's the other Days of, of Thunder one? Is this, oh, yes. Oh, wow. Pure filth is what it is. Actually, that kind of makes me think of ads for um, feminine hygiene products is the best way of so. But maybe people are getting post-traumatic stress from, from some of this. Uh, uh, this is 80s, 80s. Oh, we'll go into the 90s now, I think, because the 90s is definitely my era. It would have been a bit of Brian Adams around there as well. But I suppose this, this is now. This is the epitome of teenage years in the 90s. <laughs> Yeah, I'm there. Fellas coming out, kind of ironically dancing. Some of the fellas would bucklep into the dance floor and then warble away, disappointed with their decisions in their lives and uh, visions of hands-on arses, to be honest. That was the teenage of the late 90s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Strong energy there. Didn't you know the fella would tuck the woman in between his legs and do the sort of awkward four-legged walk thing. Was that a 90s or is it kind of 80s as well? Swear it all over again or just uh, swear out loud and uh, yeah, a lot of Brian Adams and stuff like that. Uh, There was a romance, I think, attached to the 80s versions of this. End of the Road Boys. Is this the 80s? Oh, this is 90s bang. Oh, yeah, yeah. funeral uh, quality to that. Mm, And this one? Oh, yes. I swear. By the the all for one. Uh, Not the voucher people, that's one for all. Yes. Did anyone actually enjoy the slow set? And that's about all we have time for on this Valentine's edition of Playback Daily. But as always, if you'd like to listen back to any of your favourite shows on Radio 1, you can do that on the RTE Radio app. So from me, Louise Herity, thanks for listening and take care. <laughs>